Hello, everybody. This is Marla Spindell, Executive Director with DC Kin Care Alliance, and I'm here with my colleague, Stephanie McClellan, Deputy Director. It is Wednesday, May 6th, 2020. We are now about two months into this pandemic, and it's another rainy, gloomy day here in Washington, D.C., but a lot has been going on, and we did want to update you on new developments in D.C. with respect to benefits services and other things for those living in the district. So we did update our COVID-19 Q&As that provide information on various areas, including public benefits, housing, utilities, credit reporting, and we're going to go through some of those Q&As today, as we've done in prior podcasts. Mostly today, we'll just give you the updates on things that have changed or things that are new. The full Q&As are uploaded onto the COVID-19 Resource Center on our website, www.dckincare.org. So, Stephanie, what do we want to talk about today? What are the new things that are happening? Looking here at our Q&As. Well, the first thing I want to do is tell all our wonderful relative caregivers to please be careful and stay safe. The numbers that have been reported through the end of April show that Ward 8 has the highest death rate from COVID-19 in all the DC wards. Not the highest infection rate, but the highest death rate among those who are infected. And that means that if you live in Ward 8 and you get COVID, you have a higher chance of dying from it than if you live in other parts of the city. And that's probably due to the prevalence of underlying health conditions like diabetes, high blood pressure, and asthma. So all our wonderful relative caregivers, please take care of yourself, observe social distancing, and the kids that you take care of need you, and we don't want to see anything happen to you. Yeah, that's sort of a sobering data point, but hopefully our relative caregivers will be safe and we'll be able to help them to make it through this pandemic with the other information that we're going to be able to provide today and that we'll continue to provide through this podcast on our website and through our helpline, which is 202-505-5803. Feel free to call our helpline if you're a relative caregiver raising a child in D.C. and you have any questions or need any help. So what did you want to start out with as far as the Q&As today, Stephanie? Well, I think the first thing we want to talk about is testing for COVID-19. Who can get a test, how you get a test. That's one way to keep yourself safe if you are experiencing symptoms or you think you have been exposed to somebody who has tested positive. It's a great way to start the process of taking care of yourself. People have asked about who can get a test and what do you need to do or do you need to have a doctor's order? Do you need to have symptoms? What is the situation as far as that goes? The district is offering free appointment required testing at United Medical Center and at the UDC Bertie Backus campus to healthcare facility workers or first responders employed in DC. 
DC residents over 65 or with underlying health conditions who have symptoms or exposure to COVID-19 patients, DC residents with an order for testing from their doctor, critical infrastructure workers, including grocery store government and other workers who are still reporting to work employed in DC with symptoms or exposure to a COVID-19 patient, and DC residents who don't meet the above requirements but do have symptoms. Bread for the City has a free walk-up testing clinic at their location at 1525 7th Street Northwest, Monday through Friday, 1 to 3 p.m., and that is for the first 50 people in line. No doctor's order is required and no insurance is required. They just ask that you wear a mask and bring photo ID. And for more information about their testing, you can go to breadforthecity.org or call them at 202-265-2400. Also, Howard University's Benning Road Clinic at 4414 Benning Road Northeast, Suite 2400, has free testing on Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. You must call for an appointment at 202-865-2119 and press option number three. No doctor's order is required. And if you want information about testing overall, go to coronavirus dot dc dot gov slash covid19 hyphen testing great that's a lot of really good information i just had one question on the dc free testing at united medical center or udc birdie Backus campus i heard that you said that you need to make an appointment do you have the number to call for that to make that appointment that's right. You have to call 855-363-0333 to get an appointment. Great. That's helpful. Thanks. So what else do we want to talk about? What about food? That seems pretty important these days. How do people get food in the city? If you need a free bag of groceries delivered, call Bread for the City at 202-265-2400. Or you can complete the request form online at breadforthecity.org. And for residents who are homebound, you can call the Food Access Hotline at 888-349-8323. And if you want more information on grocery store and locations for DCPS meal sites, go to coronavirus.dc.gov food. Great. That website section will tell me where to go to get food if I don't need a delivery. If I wanted to go to the store, it would tell me what places are open, their hours, that kind of thing. That's right. And it also has a list of the DCPS meal sites. I heard that there's some more information about benefits like TANF and SNAP, and now that we've gotten to the end of April, what's going on with having to recertify in subsequent months, and what's going on with work requirements for TANF. Do you know anything about that? Yes. Your benefits will automatically continue, and you don't have to recertify in May or June. TANF is not imposing sanctions for failure to complete work requirements, and orientation and training programs have been suspended. 
and also SNAP customers not receiving the maximum benefit should continue to receive emergency SNAP allotments in May. Great. That's really helpful to know. I looked at the website, the DHS website recently, and didn't see that information on the website. So I think it's helpful to try to get that out there so people don't have to be worried about recertifying or their work requirements and whether they're going to be getting the emergency SNAP allotments. So I think that's really helpful to know. So Marla, do you want to share what you've been doing with regard to advocating for easier access to the Grandparent Caregiver Program subsidy and the Close Relative Caregiver Program subsidy? Sure. I think we spoke on an earlier podcast about some of the concerns that we had or that we were identifying with respect to applying for those programs that typically pre-COVID, the caregiver would have to come down to the CFSA offices to apply, do fingerprinting, and pick up their cards and sign their subsidy agreement all at different times. So somebody might have to come down to CFSA three to four different times before they would ever receive any money. We think that's onerous and burdensome during normal times, but certainly raises serious concerns about health and safety during the COVID public health emergency. We don't believe caregivers should have to travel to CFSA at all to complete their applications and get their benefits. There are ways that this can be done such that everything can be done from the caregiver's home. However, all of our efforts to informally advocate for streamlining the process unfortunately failed. So we worked with some other advocates in the DC community and put together a memorandum to the director of CFSA signed on to by 10 total organizations and individuals interested in this issue. And what we're recommending is that the caregiver application can be completed over the phone with a verbal attestation in lieu of a wet or electronic signature because some of our caregiver relatives do not have access to the internet, so it's hard for them to be able to submit anything online. So this would allow them to do so by phone and would also allow them not to have to travel to drop off documents. Second, we're asking that the fingerprinting requirements be waived during the public health emergency, similar to what the U.S. Children's Bureau has recommended for foster parents during the public health emergency, that fingerprinting requirements be waived during or suspended during the public health emergency because it does require such close physical contact and would put both the caregiver and CFSA staff at risk of infection. Third, we're asking that the subsidy agreement be able to be signed through verbal attestation, similar to the application, and that the debit card with the money that's issued to the caregiver is sent to the caregiver through the regular mail rather than them having to come down to the CFSA offices to sign and retrieve it. All other debit cards in the city for benefits are sent through the regular mail and none require a recipient to come sign for it in person. All of these things that we're asking for are easy to achieve 
easy to implement and result in more access to caregivers to these benefits to which they're entitled and ensures the safety of the caregiver and CFSA staff. So we're hopeful that the director will consider our requests and make some changes. Well, good work, Marla. All of those sound very reasonable to me, and hopefully CFSA will implement them. Thanks, and we'll keep everybody updated on any progress there. So Marla, has there been any recent legislation about housing? Just yesterday, the D.C. Council enacted the third version of emergency COVID-19 legislation. And as part of that legislation, they implemented a moratorium on filing eviction cases by landlords during the public health emergency and for 60 days thereafter. So in other words, landlords are not going to be able to file in D.C. Superior Court an eviction case against you during the public health emergency and for 60 days thereafter. So Marlo, that's really good to know. Before, we knew that you couldn't be evicted during the public health emergency, but it wasn't really clear whether or not a landlord could go ahead and file a case against you, and it's a relief to know they can't. Yeah, in fact, the legislation called it eviction clarification, so I think they realized that there was that confusion. I think the intent was that landlords should not be able to do that, but that's not how the initial legislation read, and I don't think landlords necessarily stopped filing cases. So Marla, what about people who are struggling to keep up with their rent during the public health emergency? Is there any help for them? There are two things that are available. The first is, again, something that was enacted just yesterday, which requires landlords with five or more residential units rented or available for rent to develop rent payment programs for tenants who have notified them that they can't pay some or all of their rent due to COVID. Under the program, a landlord must permit an eligible tenant to enter into a payment plan for rent that comes due during the covered time period, which is during the public health emergency and for one year thereafter. They also must waive all fees and penalties arising out of entering into a payment plan. They cannot report to a credit bureau that you're delinquent in the rent if you're subject to a payment plan and they must notify all tenants of the availability terms and application process for the rent payment program. All such plans also need to be in writing. So I think that'll be really good for some people to be able to enter into these plans with their landlords if they know they're not going to be able to pay rent right now. The second thing is going to be starting on May 11th. The Department of Housing and Community Development will be commencing a rental assistance program for low-income D.C. residents to help pay both their April and their May rent. The program is intended to assist 400 households for between six months to two years based on financial need and available funds. The application isn't available yet, but if you check back at coronavirus.dc.gov, you will presumably be able to access the application on the website on or after May 11th. You know, another interesting piece of the legislation from yesterday related to credit reporting. Can you tell us a little bit about that, Stephanie? Sure. 
If you show evidence of financial hardship to a credit reporting agency resulting from the public health emergency, the agency must include a COVID-19 alert in your file showing that you've been financially impacted by the COVID-19 public health emergency, and it has to include that alert with any consumer report or credit score provided by the agency. And you can also request the agency to remove that alert at any time. And nobody who requests a consumer report can use or take into consideration any bad information in that report that was the result of anything you did or anything you didn't do if there is a COVID-19 alert on your report. I really think this piece of the legislation is novel and a really helpful thing for many people. I know a lot of our caregivers have worked really hard to increase their credit scores, and now through no fault of their own, they're losing their jobs or they're getting laid off or their hours are being reduced and they're really worried that all of that hard work will go to waste. And so I think it's really helpful to know that at least there could be this accommodation and people would realize that it was because of this unprecedented situation and not because of anything that they did that resulted in a reduced credit score. So Marla, can you take a minute to explain to our listeners what's going on with unemployment insurance and sick and family medical leave? I know it's something that we've talked a little bit about before, but these issues are really complicated. And so I think it'd be helpful to explain what's going on and what is available. Sure. So unemployment insurance is available as it always has been to employees who have been laid off or have reduced hours or they're unable to work through no fault of their own. And so they would be entitled to unemployment insurance compensation and would file for that the way they normally would. However, as we've said in prior podcasts, the work search requirement and the waiting period are waived when you're applying for unemployment insurance. And you're also going to receive an extra $600 per week through July 31st, 2020 because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, while unemployment insurance is typically only reserved for employees, those people who get W-2s, federal law established something called the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance Program. And this expanded unemployment insurance to other types of workers during this COVID-19 public health emergency. And those other workers are independent contractors, self-employed freelance and gig workers, workers hired for a job who didn't start work. So if you were offered a job, but they told you you shouldn't start because of COVID, they no longer needed you, or you have insufficient work history to qualify for the standard unemployment benefits, those seeking part-time work and those receiving or who recently exhausted unemployment insurance. Now, the little bit of confusion comes up if you're one of those workers and you want to apply for unemployment under this pandemic unemployment assistance program, how do you do that? And so what you actually have to do is apply for regular unemployment insurance the way that employees would file, get denied by 
regular unemployment because you're not an employee, and then you're able to apply for the pandemic unemployment assistance. So super annoying, but important to know. Where can people yeah. go for help doing all this? The website that has all of the information about unemployment insurance and the PUA, Pandemic Unemployment Assistance Program, is does.dc.gov, or you can call 202-724-7000. If you need help filing any of these claims, First Shift Justice Project is really helpful, and this is the er their area of expertise. You can go to their website at firstshift.org, or you can call them at 240-241-0897 or email them at intake at firstshift.org. If you're a caregiver raising a DC child and you need help with this, you can also call our helpline and we can help you out at 202-505-5803. So Marla, what about if you get sick or you have to take care of a family member who is sick. I know we've talked before about sick leave, paid sick leave that's available in DC. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what other rights they might have? Sure, so in addition to the sick leave we've discussed before, certain DC employees also have a right to unpaid leave under the DC Family Medical Leave Act and the right to return to their jobs after the public health emergency ends. This applies to all DC employers, no matter what their size, and all employees, no matter how much time you worked. As long as you are a worker directed by a medical provider or government official to isolate or self-quarantine, you are a worker diagnosed with or having COVID-19 symptoms, a worker at high risk for COVID-19 with medical documentation, a worker who is caring for a high-risk family member or a worker with child care responsibilities resulting from COVID-19 that prevent them from reporting to work, such as if their child is home from school because schools are now only providing online learning. Again, I would recommend that if you have questions about this or need assistance, you should go to First Shift Justice Project for help. And I'll just give the phone number again, 240-241-0897. So I think that's all we have for today. We will continue to keep everybody updated on new information, new legislation. The D.C. Council is round of emergency legislation in two weeks, so we'll definitely update you then. We hope that you've enjoyed listening and that you will continue to listen to our future podcasts. And we hope you have a great rest of your day. Goodbye, everyone. Bye-bye.